Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Had a Dream speech. We all know and remember, we've heard. But to hear a man so rooted in his theology and then to apply that theology to the violent racism that he felt, I mean, it's just a thing of beauty to say that the theology affects the here and now. And he would say, I have a dream, and you think of his voice, how he, he, he said it, I won't do it, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And then to hear Martin say two years later, two years after that, what I understood to be this life-changing event, the thing that turned the tide, to hear him say two years later, I tried to tell the nation about a dream I had. I must confess to you this morning that since that sweltering August afternoon in 1963, my dream has often turned into a nightmare. My dream has been shattered. I saw it shattered one night on Highway 80 in Alabama when Ms. Viola Liuslo was shot down. I had a nightmare and saw my dream shattered one night in Marion, Alabama when Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot down. And he goes on. And we could add to that and say shattered when Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Charles Kinsey, shattered. I mean, what dream is left? What do we have to say for that dream? Watching school teachers being thrown to the ground right here in Austin. Watching a man who's helping an autistic child with his hands in the air saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And you watch it on video and he gets shot. Why? Image bearers shot. Why? What does God have to say to what we see on our Twitter feed every morning? To what we don't want to hear on the news every, every day? What does God have to say about partiality, racism, and its aftermath? He has a lot to say. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be looking at James 2. Verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the laws as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Be seated. God, we come before you this morning, and we ask that your word would be a, a conduit of grace. That it, it, would, it would shock us this morning and heal us. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak this morning through James to our present situation here in 2016. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are joining us for the first time this summer, we are walking through the book of James. Um, let me get you caught up. We're in James. Uh, James is none other than Jesus' actual brother, um, who uh, then is now the leader of the church. Um, but he didn't believe a lick of what Jesus said uh, when he was growing up. Not one of Jesus' brothers or sisters did. Um, but now, um, Jesus, uh, James is the believer. He is the pastor. He is now um, writing this letter to this church, and it's an a, a overly practical letter. Um, a, a, uh, last week we heard, or two weeks ago, we heard an uncomfortably practical letter uh, when he says things like, faith without works is dead. And so he, he's talking to those who are the professional sermon tasters, sipping on the sermon and saying, hmm, you know, and he's saying, it, it doesn't do any good to just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer. There has to be a response. Uh, and so, well, now we get to today and we get to this very real situation. Uh, and as I said, I, I feel ill-equipped to speak on this issue. Um, but knowing that, knowing that this, this was coming, I've been seeking out uh, lots of um, input and spoken with a number of those uh, not my, don't look like me, uh, minorities, and just asked questions and just said, what are you going through these last couple weeks? How have you experienced racism? How have you felt it? And it's been eye-opening and and good to, to have those conversations. Um, but some of you might be saying, Slim, you're making it worse. Like, just talking about it is making it worse. Uh, this isn't the 1960s. Well, obviously not. Obviously, we are not all on the same page here. Obviously, it's not obvious to everyone that all men are created equal. It wasn't even obvious to the great philosopher Aristotle. That great philosopher, he's quoted as saying, when you look at some people, they just look like they're born to be slaves. When you look at some people, they just look like they're born to be slaves. 
Aristotle says it's not that obvious. We say it's obvious everyone has infinite worth, and Aristotle says it's obvious if you look at someone if they have worth. And so James calls it out, and notice how he does it. He sounds like this is an all-too-familiar incident. Remember, he was a pastor of a, of a church, and so this might be his church. We don't know. But he, he begins with saying, my brothers. My brothers, as if he is complicit. Show no impartiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, my brothers identify himself as complicit, and in so doing, he invites all of us to, to have a moment of self-reflection and ask ourselves, how have we engaged in the sin of partiality? He invites us to, to consider with him. And then he says, show no partiality. Uh, another word there might be favoritism. Show no favoritism. And that, and that word literally in the Greek, it's only found here in this passage. It, it, it means receiving the face. It refers to making judgments and distinctions based on how a person looks on external considerations without considering their true merits, abilities, or character. And so James gives this example that's to be abhorred. Um, James, James does this example um, for this outlet of favoritism. It's not the only outlet of it, but he gives the example of someone coming to the church. And let's say this is your first Sunday, or you can think back to when it was your first Sunday, and uh, you, you think, I'm going to put on my Sunday best. I'm going to look good. I'm going to put on my best clothes. I actually took a shower, maybe. And you find that there's actually a visitor spot here for you in, in the parking lot, and you think, things are looking good, but that's as, be that's, that's as far as it goes. As you walk in the door, talking to you greeters, this sermon's for you, <laughs> the greeter, smiles at you, but realizes that you really don't have any worth, and you aren't really going to add anything to the church, and so quickly ushers you back into the church and says, okay, thanks, just keep going. And you think, well, that was odd. Um, and then you notice the guy behind you is a rather athletic, taller man with a pinstripe suit and a, and a, and a nice tie, and you see them just light up for him. And as you, you walk in the door, you, you start looking, where should I sit? Um, this morning, there are seats available, um, and you wonder... <laughs> Or should I sit? Uh, but someone says, you probably should sit in the back. And you think, okay, maybe that's just where visitors sit. And then in the back, they say, you know what? Your, your clothes are kind of shabby, and they're kind of dirty. They look a little soiled. Um, out of respect for our beloved red chairs, would you sit on the ground? And then you watch that pinstripe man come in, and you realize that, uh, he's from Dallas, he's an investor, and you watch all the officers, not just the greeters, fawning over him, and all the leaders of the church is saying, oh, come in, please, 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 and they all start uh, talking slash debating over uh, which, who he's going to sit with, and the, all the officers are saying, please, get, move, family, move over, we need space for him, and then I, as the pastor, step in and say, no, 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 we're going to treat you right, we're going to put you on the front row, and I, I start asking him questions like, you know, where are you from? Um, what are you doing after church for lunch? Do you play golf? While you have to pick up a dead grasshopper off the ground in the back, move it over so that you can sit on the ground. Obviously, this is not a real example because uh, clearly no one wants to sit on the front row. Uh, LAUGHTER 
We don't have a disease. <laughs> it's cool. I don't have a complex or anything about that. We know that there's this gap of that. Um, but James is, is citing this example that, that's possibly of a church that he pastored and says, this is an example of favoritism. This is the example of it. And he, he says in verse 2, he just, I'll give you his example. For if a man wearing a gold ring, or it's saying ringed fingered, like multiple rings all over his fingers, and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made the distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so James, he applies this to the economic level of the poor and the rich. But the Greek word here for favoritism is uh, acts, plural, of favoritism. There's multiple avenues of playing favorites, of, of whether it's with age, whether it's with gender, whether, whether it is socioeconomic, or where my heart here is burdened right now is race. But any acts of favoritism is what he's after. Why? Because he says it's evil. James says you are like a bribed judge making unjust rulings for wicked gain, not allowing a woman, not allowing a woman to speak because you degrade a whole class of people and say, women have no voice in my world because that's just the way it is. That is categorically evil. Give them a voice. Racism isn't just uncomfortable. It's not just uh, somewhat accepted, somewhat not accepted. We're, we're unclear in our, in our society. It is categorically evil. Racism is the need to describe bone-deep features to people and then to humiliate them, to reduce them, and to destroy them. Racism is a, a visceral experience that dislodges the brain, that blocks airways, that rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, and breaks teeth. One black hip-hop artist said, you hate me, don't you? You hate my people. Your plan is to terminate my culture. You're evil. He's right. I mean, that is evil. And we as a denomination have not distanced ourselves enough from that evil when one of our own leaders, one of our own ordained seminary professors has to wonder are they still cool with racism? His group, Jamar Tisby asks, am I truly welcome here or not? I mean, what? How can he be asking that question? <laughs> we must repent. I'm thankful our denomination passed that 43rd overture this past summer. If you missed me reading that during our extended supremacy time, I encourage you to go look that up online. But we personally must repent of this evil. Repent of showing partiality to one particular group, playing favorites and saying, you have a seat at the table. You can engage and be a part while you sit on the floor. 
we wonder, why don't we know what racial diversity is? But then we see one of our own leaders is wondering whether he's welcome. Change has to come. And so James argues right now that favoritism is wrong because, one, it contradicts God's regard for the poor and the marginalized. And then, two, he, he says here, it just makes no sense. He just says, it just, it just, it's just not practical. <laughs> I love it here. He's, just, he's telling, us, God's telling us that our partiality just isn't working in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And James says that your bias doesn't even benefit. That your bias doesn't even benefit. The ones you're biased towards are the ones who are bringing you down. The ones who are suing you. And we wonder... Well, their sin isn't that bad, and then we get, we get surprised when their sin turns on us, when the self-righteous supremacist turns on us, when the brash sexist brings down a company, when we get sued by the rich. And we might say, well, their sin is not that bad. It's just the way the world is. It's an odd quirk from them. I'm like, absolutely not. James is saying, absolutely not. In verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. The racist has so low a view of the law that he thinks he's good. He has so low a view of God, he says, well, I've kept most of it. I've actually, been, I've actually brought more to your, to your church than I've taken from it. And so I'm sure God will see that. And we would say, eh, wrong. You're a transgressor. You have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Just as a pianist who strikes one wrong note produces this discord, you think, oh. Or you see a coffee stain on a shirt. The shirt is dirty. One sin makes you a transgressor of the law of God is what he's telling us here. And you can say, but God, I never killed anybody. Yeah, but you didn't love your neighbor. James tells every single person in this room that we have failed the royal law, the law to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the simple law, right? It's that simple law. Just love your neighbor. I have to say it to my, my, my kids all the time. Love your brother. Love your brother. Love your brother. It's that simple law. But it encompasses so much. To love your neighbor means everything. <laughs> I mean, it, it has cost men eternity in heaven. And then it has brought such great comfort to those who have felt being loved by their neighbor. That one law has done all of that. In case you still didn't believe him, he makes it explicit. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. And so there's no way around it. Partiality, favoritism, discrimination, racism is sin. It's possibly one of the biggest temptations we have to discriminate against one another because it's that supreme law, the law that governs all other laws. You know, so James says, love your neighbor. 
and he says, you cannot love your neighbor if you think you're better than them. Think about that. You cannot love someone that you think you're better than. Discrimination or that feeling of superiority blocks your ability to love them. Can you love someone who you think is filth? Can you empathize with them? Can you humble yourself enough to serve them? And love is more than just saying I love you. It is actually part of this service. Verse 12, he gets very specific. He says, love your neighbor actually means something. That act, that there is a, an act to the royal law. Speak and act out the royal law. Love your neighbor. Stepping out. Possibly getting hurt. Speaking up when you don't even know what to say. Because our, our silence screams something else to the oppressed. Staying silent actually screams something to the oppressed. Love your neighbor is a royal law because if you keep it, you keep all the other laws. You love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. Love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery. You love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to gossip about them. Love your neighbor is the royal law because all others come from that. And we say, of course, yes, 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 I, I believe that. I would never do those horrible things to other people. But he's not even a person. So murdering them doesn't count. I mean, is, is that what we're thinking? They're not even people? That they have no divine image bearing on them? And that's what God says, absolutely not. The, the group of people that we think we are so better than, that are so below us, that have no value, God says they have infinite value. They have the mark of Yahweh on them, reflecting His glory. Martin Luther King preached that the whole concept of the Imago Dei, which is the Latin term, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that they have a man has capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the mercy of God. There are no gradations in the image of God. And I love what he says here. He says, every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's key keyboard precisely because every man has the image of God endued into them. They have intrinsic value and worth Muhammad Ali said, I'm black and I'm pretty. To have that fighter, that giant man say, I'm pretty, just gave everyone around him a sense of somebodyness and a sense of value. 
to tell those who around him, you're precious. To those who wondered, am I? I think everyone has had the moment, you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. But I've never had to look in the mirror and go, is my skin color the right one? Is it ugly? Did it, do I have the right hue? Do I have the right complexion? And Ali says, you're pretty. He says, you have value. You have the mark. He doesn't say this, but <laughs> you have the mark of God on you. Praising his excellency with worth. And you may be thinking, yeah, this sermon should have been preached in the 60s, but what about now? We believe that. Jim Crow ended a long time ago, someone told me in the last two weeks. Did you know that Waco just recently took down a chain-link fence that divided a cemetery with whites on one side and blacks on the other? Just recently. Not 40 years ago, just recently. As if they're not going to the same place. They can't be buried with each other. Maybe they're not going to the same place. Someone will want to say, let's just move on. Because it's, it, it's more of a big deal when we talk about it. And I get that. We, you, you might say, there's no such thing as black Christians and white Christians. There's just Christians. And I think it's, it's out of good motives that we say that. We want to we uphold that no partiality. But it's naive. But let me let a black author who, from the Reformed African American Network tell you his response to that, what's called that, the colorblind theory. Jarvis Williams writes, regardless of how pious the colorblind theory sounds to Christians, it's actually cruel and damaging. The colorblind theory of race denies the racialized experience of marginalized. Black people were ripped apart from their families, enslaved, lynched, sprayed with water hoses, beaten with clubs, given separate bathrooms and water fountains, and were forced to live in a society where everything in their experience reminded them of their so-called inferiority. Blacks also had to endure dehumanizing names that I won't say, simply because their black bodies were not white. Names that reinforce their racialized status of inferior. Skin color brings with it culture. It brings with it a history, a past, an experience that we can't deny. James isn't saying there's no such thing as rich and no such thing as poor. He's not saying that that doesn't exist. He's also not saying that the rich are the villains here. He's just saying stop playing favorites. Stop valuing one or the over the other. Actually look at the poor and see, their, see what they actually need. Look at their history. Look at the marginalized and look at the history books. Don't deny them that. The past is ripe with racism. We see it in Jesus' day, right? He comes, he comes back and he, he comes to the, uh, his triumphal entry. He comes into the temple. And what does he see? He sees that uh, the religious leaders have created a separate area for the Jews to worship in, in the center, and that, that it can be peaceful and quiet. 
while on the outer courts is where the Gentiles were, the other race. And it was smelly, and it was, it was, there was an exchange of animals. And it was this, this evil caste system. And Jesus goes in, what does he do? He starts overturning tables and says, this can't be. And he quotes Isaiah and says, is not my house is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And then when the church first started, and when the first church, we got it wrong. Acts 6 tells us that there was this dispute amongst Greek Jews and Hebraic Jews. And the Greek Jews were the ones who spoke Greek, had the Greek culture. And the Hebrew Jews were the ones who had their own culture, and they felt like they were the, the, the real Jews. And the church was favoring the Hebraic Jews over the Greek Jews and giving them the daily portions of benevolence and care. And the Greek Jews said, hey, this, ha this can't be. You're, we don't get any. And the apostles did something odd. They come in and they appoint deacons over them, which is where we get deacons. They come in and they appoint seven deacons. And the seven deacons that they appointed were all, if we look at the Greek names, or the names, they're actually Greek. They point all seven from the marginalized party to decide who gets division. That's interesting. Elders, deacons, redeemers, PCA. Something for us to learn from. To have someone from the, the marginalized party, someone from the disempowered, and gave them power and said they have worth and value to make decisions. But the history of racism doesn't just end with the civil rights. We, we see it here, in, 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 obviously, today. We see it. It's not absent from our beloved denomination. Um, I mean, how, how do we wait this long to collectively repent? What active forms of racism are present here? I mean, wouldn't you want to know that? Duke Kwan spoke at our General Assembly this, this summer, right before the vote, the historic vote, uh, to, to pass this overture that said we do repent. Um, and he says, What keeps folks of color out of our churches, friends, is not public racial hostility, it's our shared institutional blindness to the exclusivity of white normativity that is protected by plausible deniability. Does that make sense? White normativity is the passive racism of our beloved denomination. And what that is, is he says, it's this unwritten cultural precepts that serve as a source of minority alienation in a majority culture. And what, what he's saying here, what he's saying here is that we have a church, we, we as, a, as a denomination have a culture we have all these cultural precepts that alienate people just as much as saying, you sit on the floor. That scream, not welcome. Isn't it our duty to find out what that is? I mean, this is frightening. I mean, Lord, show us. Show us. Show our leaders. Reveal to us our passive racism. Reveal to us as a church ways that we are complicit in this. Some of us don't want to look there. I understand that. You don't want to look at it and say, wow, I'm that terrible of a monster. <laughs> I mean, that's frightening to look at. 
Why would you want to look at that? He tells us in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Why see hatred in your own heart? Well, one thing, it's a way to see, are you even a believer? I'm sorry, but it's my job as the pastor to, to love you in this way. If you have the, this constant judgment of a whole class of people, do you understand what's at the very core of who we are about grace and mercy? You may not be a believer <laughs> because when you go to the Lord on that day of judgment and you, you, you're, you judge so willy-nilly, so, so fluently, God says, that's fine, you can be a racist. You can, you can judge a certain group of people but I'll just judge you by that same measure that you judge others with. So when you come to me on that day, I will judge you with that same measure. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. By that same level. And since you show no mercy, you will receive no mercy. I mean, is that shocking? <laughs> that Jesus is going to say that? It's not that he's not a God of mercy. He's asking, do you, do you believe what, I, what I've done for you? Do you believe who you, who you were when I died for you? This is central to who we are. And if God shows these outward acts of mercy to you, shouldn't we then do it to others? And if you judge others based on their appearance, and God says, fine, I'll just judge you based on your appearance. Judgment. And then it gets even scarier when he starts looking at your heart and your mind. Judgment. But the last part of that verse is just so beautiful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have a God who longs to show mercy. We have a God who says, I show partiality to mercy over judgment. I prefer to show mercy than judgment. I prefer to let Jesus take the pain than you. I show partiality in that way. And so if you've been feeling guilt boiling up in you, that's good. That might move you to repentance. But give that guilt over to Jesus. And say, he's actually paid for that guilt. He's paid the price for it. Remember, it may not be an observable racism. It might just start out as just a bias. I'm just saying, an assumed guilt. And so what starts out as a bias moves to an assumed guilt, moves to the, the assumption that these people will always behave this way, and then boom, 12-year-old killed. You just act on your assumptions, act on your biases, and we murder. We assume guilt and we assume evil. But who is really evil? James tells us we are. But even for racists, there's mercy, which is wild. Even for terrorists, even for evil people, there is mercy. Even for you and me, we can find grace. I would invite you today to take your shame to the cross. You cannot bear that shame on your shoulders by yourself. It will kill you. 
bring it to the cross, it, it, it will paralyze you so you don't even get off the couch and say, oh, I'm not going to do anything now. I just feel so bad. Bring it to Jesus. It's free to you, but it cost him his life. He says, let me pay for it. And all that good th- theology that we believe that I'm so much worse than I actually know, <laughs> that actually will bring you down <laughs> to a level where you can now love people around you that you didn't think, that you thought you were better than before. You can actually then say, no, they are beautiful. I actually do care for them. I know it's a long sermon. I could end here. But I just want to give you some practical things real quick. Can I pass on what I've discovered in my journey towards racial reconciliation? Um, just, Just know some things, just practical things. No terms like white flight. Know what that means. No terms like white privilege. See it. When you hear someone say black lives matter, do not respond and say all lives matter. Here's why. When someone says black lives matter, they're feeling pain over someone who's hurt. And it's as if you, you, you call the 911 operator and you say, my house is being robbed. And the operator says, well, many other houses are being robbed too. Or it's as if you're, you're at a cancer fundraiser and someone runs through and says, there's other diseases too. It ignores the context. Black Lives Matter is not saying that they matter only. Micah Edmondson says, it means that black lives matter too. It's a contextualized statement, like saying children's lives matter. It doesn't mean that adults' lives don't matter. It's, it's a contextualized statement saying all lives matter, but specifically we want to say the black lives matter here because we just saw someone, an image bearer, leave this, this world. Edmondson asks us to ask ourselves these uncomfortable questions, and I'll, I'm going to let him ask them. Am I buying into the sinful belief that black folks are more inherently criminal than other people? When I hear about unarmed black people being killed, is my knee-jerk reaction that they somehow deserved whatever terrible thing happened to them? Am I cold and hardened to black suffering? Why am I not as torn up over this as non-Christians are? Why is Black Lives Matter more torn up over black people dying than we are? Loving our neighbor means to empathize and to then take on their hurt, take on their pain and cry with them. I mean, how would your world be different if you grew up with a different skin color, a different gender, a different socioeconomic status? It's stepping into those shoes and and feeling it with them. One of the things that I, I got to learn in my talks with other people over the last couple of weeks and months. I've never, as a parent, had to have a conversation with my child about the police. That is a, that is a rule that I found happens with every black parent. My dad never had that conversation with me. I'm going to have that with my kids. Things to, things to consider as we, as we step into their shoes. 
I mean, read books like I was told this, and I started doing it, Between the World and Me. There's also a, a book called Heal Us, O Emmanuel, that was, that was begun by um, uh, a bunch of PCA pastors that, that are, are trying to help us work through this process of reconciliation. Go to the Reformed African American Network. I would say just mourn and cry and <laughs> pray. Pray for our, our church. Pray for our leaders that we would figure out ways to, to actively engage in this and to, to work towards reconciliation. Pray that the cross would reconcile us not only vertically but horizontally to kill the hostility. That we as, as a church would actually represent our community well. And Waco is diverse. That we would reflect the diversity of Waco. And that as we are being missional, we would have to become multi-ethnic. Pray for an impulse for us to be that way. And then maybe, just maybe, we can actually live out that what our Declaration of Independence actually says, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Beautiful. Beautifully written. And when enemies resist us, when they actually see us becoming what we will be one day in Revelation 7, when all nations and all tribes are gathered together, when we as a church will be a mosaic of God's creation, not just then, but here and now, when they start resisting us, we can actually respond like Martin Luther King does and say, we need not hate, we need not use violence. We can stand up before our most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We will go into those jails and transform them from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and dignity. Man, he got it. Martin Luther King got it. He preferred mercy over justice. I mean, the guy who, who should be acting on his justice and saying justice needs to be delivered, he preferred mercy over justice. And what a picture that is of what Jesus does for us who prefers to show bias, discriminatory people like us mercy over the justice that we deserve. May I pray the Lord heals us, reunites us with himself, and reunites us with each other and with our, our, our culture, with our city. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. You are so good. You long to show mercy. May this passage bring us to our knees to, to not only to need that mercy, but to, to, to see your goodness and how much you do love a broken generation and broken people like us. May we actually embody your command to love our neighbor. And that we would... We would consciously look for ways in which we don't. Lord, reveal to us our bias. What group of people do we, do we say we are better than? And God, kill that. Mortify, crucify that. Bring us back to you. And Lord, again, we ask that our, our shame and guilt wouldn't weigh us down, 
we'd see your, your, your glorious one-time sacrifice for us. And that would, that would empower us to be conduits of love to the, our neighbors, to speak boldly without fear of rejection, to love the unlovable, to show and act and speak mercy to the poor, to the marginalized, to those who look different than us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.